Morning, Glory America. It is the last radio hour of the week here on the Hugh Hewitt Show, and that means the Hillsdale Dialogue is upon us. Once each week, I talk with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his colleagues, about something that matters greatly from the history and the legacy and the canon of the West, occasionally current events like today, and often one of his colleagues, like poor Matt Spaulding. I say poor Matt Spaulding because last week I had Matt Spaulding on, and then I went out and about in the country with my friend Dennis Prager, and people chastised me for exiling Dr. Arn. I don't know what it is, Larry Arn, but people have grown accustomed to, I, I don't know, your berating of me, your your Arkansian odd inflection. I'm not sure what it is, but Matt Spaulding, Spaulding got the whack this time for, for usurping your place like he was some kind of, of character in a Shakespearean tragedy. I'm going to give that boy a raise. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's going to take you to the bank on that, by the way. So, uh, well, congratulations. You had commencements yourself. You are back, settled in for the summer. And I would love to talk to you, as we will next week and the week thereafter, about the Articles of Confederation period. But first, we must discuss... President Trump and the Paris Accord, because it is, in fact, a constitutional issue of the first order. What did you make of the president's argument yesterday? Not the reaction, we'll come to that, but his argument. Well, as you know, the American uh, Revolution ended in 1783 with the Paris Accords on climate change. (laughs) 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 And now, President Trump has undone the entire American Revolution. Apparently. Well, I have to. That is, in fact, this is. Let me play for you. The, 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 the stuff is so over the top. Fareed Zakaria, yesterday, cut number 11. Um, Jake, I think that it really will, if it proves to be what we think it is, this will be the day that the United States resigned as the leader of the free world. Uh, it's, it's nothing short of that. The, no, the, so, Larry Arn, did you know that? Yeah. <laughs> nothing, nothing short of that. Yeah, nothing short. And uh, it, it, uh, so Trump's argument was, you know, by the way, simple and constitutional and profoundly true. Uh, this, this thing has, is not a treaty, right? Uh, under, it's not ratified by the United States of America. It is the first single executive agreement uh, signed by America, according to the Washington Post yesterday, signed by America, that has a four-year withdrawal period. It looks like a treaty in every way, and there's a constitutional way to ratify a treaty, and that has never been attempted by Barack Obama. I, I also point out to people, the, the, the right honorable George Schultz, one of America's greatest people, uh, went ashore at Peleliu, served this country in every capacity, likes to argue to visiting media fellows at Hoover that the Montreal Protocol was a good idea, even though we weren't certain about the ozone impact. It just was an insurance policy. The Montreal Protocol was submitted to the Senate and ratified 83 to nothing in 1988, Larry Arn. And that is the difference. And, and the president, in fact, let's listen to the president, cut number seven of his remarks yesterday. Our Constitution is unique among all nations of the world. And it is my highest obligation and greatest honor to protect it. And I will. Staying in the agreement could also pose serious obstacles for the United States as we begin the process of unlocking the restrictions on America's abundant energy reserves, which we have started very strongly. It would once have been unthinkable that an international agreement could prevent the United States 
from conducting its own domestic economic affairs. But this is the new reality we face if we do not leave the agreement or if we do not negotiate a far better deal. The risks grow as historically these agreements only tend to become more and more ambitious over time. In other words, the Paris framework is just a starting point, as bad as it is, not an end point. And exiting the agreement protects the United States from future intrusions on the United States' sovereignty and massive future legal liability. I, I will come back to the second point in, in, a, in a moment, Larry, but he laid out the very precise thing. My highest duty and honor is to protect the Constitution of the United States. And people passed lightly over the fact that President Obama ignored it. Yeah. So Trump has been talking like that since 1990. This point may have been first made on your show by me because I went and looked it up because he wrote something pretty two years ago about the Constitution and the rule of law, and I went and looked up so what he had to say about it. He, it turns out he's always taken that seriously. And see, where we are is uh, we are the outlier nation in a hundred respects in regard to this thing. First of all, Great Britain and France and all of the big players in this thing have submitted the Paris Accord on Climate Change to their legislatures for ratification. Now, we are the ones with the fixed constitution that says, that prescribes that that is exactly what must be done, and we have not done that. And, and there was never any intention of doing that. And so now it is regarded as lawless and outrageous and surrendering the leadership of the free world for the president not to uh, uh, pursue, not to, what, not to execute, not to enforce a single executive agreement of this scale and scope. And so it, it's amazing, and that's, it just shows the lawlessness that is dominating politics all over the world now. All over the world. Now, I had Administrator Scott Pruitt, a very good man, very smart constitutional lawyer, is being berated by the New York Times as a climate denier, taking a lot of abuse, but I had him on last hour, and I asked him, as any good lawyer would know, well, here's the exchange. What, in your mind, was the best argument on behalf of staying in the Paris Climate Accord? You know, that, that this idea that somehow that uh, it was just simply... Uh, uh, not not enforceable or not uh, not something that uh, really could be enforced domestically, and that just simply is not the case. I mean, when you look at uh, our Clean Air Act, China and India don't face what we do domestically. Uh, what we face domestically uh, was a you know with the Paris Agreement in place are 26 to 28 percent targets uh, with uh, uh, the, all the previous actions by the previous administration. Uh, the Climate Action Agenda, the Clean Power Plan, the rest still fell 40% short of those 26 to 28% targets. And so we were vulnerable to a, an action by an environmental group here domestically uh, to sue under the Clean Air Act, specifically Section 115 of the Clean Air Act, to compel regulatory response. I mean, this was a legal uh, evaluation as much as anything uh, to make sure that our agenda uh, wouldn't be hijacked or or dominated by some sort of litigation post staying in Paris. So this was a, a very important decision across the board, but part of the decision, in fact, not a major part of the decision, was the, were the legal vulnerabilities. 
Uh, now, Dr. Arndt, I am fairly confident that one in 20 commentators understands this. Uh, but but nevertheless, they opine forward. They, they ignore the constitutional requirement, and they do not understand that there are actual legal consequences to the agreement under the Clean Air Act. Yeah, see, we... Uh we should be more serious about making agreements because we are one of the countries that if we make them, we keep them. And yes. we have mechanisms for keeping them, and the mechanisms do not depend upon the will of any one person. Right? So th- think, think what an awesome change or revolution it is to start the way we're starting with the Paris Accords because in a regular treaty, we have elections, and it takes, what does it take? It takes... Three, a third of the Senate is reelected every two years, right? So Correct. to change a majority in the Senate is a long process. It takes more than one election. And then you've got to have the president, too, the presidential election. And so those forces have to come together, and then they have to agree together about a, a treaty, and that means the popular will is consulted. Now, once it is consulted then all kinds of things follow because it becomes the law of the land, indeed parallel to constitutional law. And so a regulatory agency could be sued. I mean, God, we need to get rid of these regulatory agencies at the federal level in the main. But they could be sued and told, you've got to comply with this thing. And now, because Barack Obama put his name on a piece of paper, it is him, himself, and nobody else, then, then all of a sudden... It's like the Constitution has been rewritten. And that's how this thing is going to play out. But it was always intended to play out that way. These, the groups that push for this, which are both in governments and outside governments, have in mind a whole new method of rule of the world. And the European Union is an example of that method. And the poor people in the many countries, they get consulted on these treaties in most indirect ways, and they hardly know what's happening to them. We will be right back with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale available at hillsdale.edu, including their brand-new revised course on the Constitution, which is spectacular. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues are collected at hughforhillsdale.com. More on Paris with Dr. Arn when we return to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue once a week with Dr. Larry Arn or one of his colleagues from Hillsdale College. We talk about one of the big issues, one of the enduring issues, one of the great works of the West. Uh, we have been on the Declaration of Independence for four weeks. We have concluded that. And next week, we'll move forward to the period between the Declaration and the Constitution, wherein the United States was governed by the Articles of Confederation. But we divert from that path because there is a big constitutional issue in front of the Congress today or the country today, which is the Paris Accord and the decision by President Trump to exit from it. Dr. Arn, I, I believe in confronting the arguments of the other side directly. So I want to read a few of them to you and get your reaction. Uh, this is the New York Times this morning uh, editorializing. And I read this to Administrator Pruitt last hour. The only clever winners, and we've looked hard to find them are hardcore climate deniers like Scott Pruitt at the Environmental Protection Agency and the presidential advisor Stephen Bannon in various fossil fuel interests that have found in Mr. Trump another president, George W. Bush being the last, credulous enough to swallow the bogus argument that an agreement to fight climate change will destroy or at least inhibit the economy. In huge neon letters, this decision sends a clear message that this president knows nothing or cares little about the science underlying the stark warnings of environmental disruption. What do you think? 
Uh, yeah, well, that's, that all seems true. Um, <laughs> so, so, uh, so, first of all, fossil fuel interests. Let's think what that would mean, right? So I think Larry Arn, you know, excellent physicist, I, <laughs> I, I think that there's a, a good chance that solar power is going to substantially replace other forms of power in the intermediate future, four or five years. And I read up on that a little bit and think that there might be something to it, and certainly the cost of solar energy has been dropping a lot. Well, if that's the case, then game over, right, for the, goal, for the coal industry. Alas, right? Alas and good, both. Because solar power, you know, is, seems to come down on the earth all the time. And uh, so let's say that, that, that I'm right about that. Well, then in that case, there will be no interest worth serving, no economic interest in fossil fuel. It will be the carriage industry uh, of the 21st century. That's uh, right. That's, that's now, what will happen that, to it. Let's say that there is such an interest that's powerful and has any money behind it. How can there be such an interest? It can only be so if people need coal, right? And, and therefore, it's not just fossil fuel interest, it's people who want their houses warm, right? Their interest, because that's why they would pay any money for coal. You know, in, in uh, my wife, and my wife is from England and up in the north where her parents are from, they had a coal fire in the, you know, a little, little fireplace in the sitting room, and there was a coal scuttle outside. You went and got the coal. And, you know, nobody did that for fun. It was, you know, you didn't, like, you just didn't sit in there and watch TV. But if you want the fire, you got to go outside and get the coal, and it's sooty and black and gets on you. So the thing is, this idea of there being some artificial coal interest is ridiculous. And, uh, it, but and, it is not intended to be persuasive. It is intended actually to signal what elites believe. And that's what the Wall Street Journal replied this morning. A lot of virtue signaling going on, which I think is a very useful term. What do you make of that term? Well, that's, you see, there's a whole new way to look at the world now, right? And it's a brave new world, and you can, you can I use that title advisedly. And now we live in the world administered by international agreements responding to the claims of modern science. And virtue is doing that. And we're all to be attuned to that, right? Uh, the Europe, this, is, this is just like what's playing out. I mean, the British election has tightened. And, you know, I say my prayers about that, whichever side I'm on uh, every morning. But what, what is the European Union except this massive, intrusive, huge government that has been ratified by a series of treaties between countries and whenever those treaties have been have been submitted to a single country, they can't get them ratified. I had a uh, interesting dinner with the man who managed the vote leave. Their vote was overwhelmingly not about immigration, but about rejecting the rule by bureaucrats in Brussels. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn. Don't go anywhere, America. More on Paris when we return. Welcome back, America. To Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. It is the last radio hour of the week, and that means it's time for the Hillsdale Dialogue once a week. We delve into something lasting, important, crucial. 
a counter, part of the canon of the West, part of the deal of the Constitution that binds it to the Declaration of Independence. Wherever we are, we're talking about big issues with Dr. Larry Arner, one of his colleagues from Hillsdale College. If you are not yet uh, a subscriber to the Free Speech Digest in Primus, you ought to go and get that for free at hillsdale.edu. You ought to also enroll in the brand new Constitution course, uh, which features Dr. Arn teaching. Uh, at hillsdale.edu. And all of these conversations now, four years plus of them, are available for binge listening at hughforhillsdale.com. Uh, Dr. Arn, I want to go back, if we can, I, I want to go back to some of the critics, et cetera, and, and start with the Washington Post uh, editorial. Uh, I read this to Scott Prudy, who was unaware of the study, and the editorial only came out yesterday, so I'm not surprised. But it begins, on Monday, the journal... Nature Climate Change published a study finding that global warming's effects on major world cities could be far more devastating than previously understood. Some cities, it found, could be a staggering 14.4 degrees warmer on average by the end of the century, causing a 10.9% decline in gross domestic product as people work less, air and water quality declined, and more energy was needed to cool buildings. I've not read the underlying study, uh, but I'm assuming it's peer-reviewed. What do you make of such dire calculations and how they ought to impact public policy? Well, that's the problem, isn't it? Um, so science is very sophisticated now, you know, way more. And uh, the signs of it are everywhere. And so you do a study that says over 80 years, right, that's how long, 80 years, 80 years from now, something terrible is going to happen if we don't do a lot of really expensive things right now. And that's the proposition. And that proposition is presented in the pages of the Washington Post every day on some subject or another. Now, uh, the cost, if you do something now, are not just economic. They amount to a whole new way of governing, which is, you know, not brand new, it's heavily entrenched in all of the major countries and certainly in our country. Because the point is you do a study and then some organization makes a finding, some bureaucratic, I mean, for example, the EPA, now run by the, you know, Darth Vader, Scott Pruitt, made a finding under Obama that global war, that carbon dioxide was a pollutant and, and then therefore they can regulate it. Right? And that's just an agency decided to do that. And that's a very pervasive kind of regulation. So the point is, how are, you gonna, how are, you how are people going to remain free to make big decisions like this themselves? The, the mastery of the study is quite beyond the competence of, you know, even geniuses like you and me, right? We could go study that and we wouldn't get the math and all that. And on the other hand, let's say that we're going to hand the governance of the world over to people who can do that math. That's the problem. And, and, and we can't do it unless we ch- I mean, we could do that, but we would have to change the Constitution first to do that. I, I, you know, I, I, my rule of law arguments with my left wing friends who listen, I mean, honestly, listen, as opposed to just chirp and sloganeer. They don't, they pass over this as though it does not matter, Larry Arnn. And that is, to me, the most troubling aspect of all this argument. The rule of law just does not matter to the left. And that, that, 
they have a version of that, right? And the, the version they have just looks very different. The old, the old idea of the rule of law starts with this. Laws have to be made by the people, under, by or under the authority of the people who live under them. And therefore, writes Madison, they need to be simple, and they need to not be too many of them, and they need not to change all the time. Now, the rule of law today means big international bodies advised by lots of scientists who are significantly funded, usually by those international bodies, but not exclusively, they come to some determination. And they go to Paris, you know, because, you know, it's, it's cool to be in Paris all. Uh, and they make a big thing. 196 countries went there. And they make a big thing, and they, it's very complicated. It is, by the way, just like the Articles of Confederation in this regard, nobody is really, really has to do. The states, you know, the Articles of Confederation was formed by the states, and they agreed to do a bunch of stuff, but there wasn't any mechanism to make them do it. And as you rightly point out, and that means lots of countries won't do it. As you rightly point out, in the United States of America, we have these big bureaucracies. We will do it if it stays in line. And we'll, there'll be court rulings from the highest courts in the land that won't go back and say this agreement was never legitimate. They, they will say it's an agreement. You've got to follow it. And, and that's it. They, they will attribute to it. Uh, at, at the state court level as well as the federal court level, a, uh, a, 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 a stature to which it is not entitled because it has not been blessed as the framers intended it. So why did the framers set up, Dr. Arne, this very cumbersome process? Because two-thirds of the Senate is hard to achieve. Moreover, we have a long and storied history of precedents of executive agreements existing, such as the one FDR used to send Churchill aid in his moment of distress via the destroyers for bases deal. So we recognize that executive agreements exist and are constitutional, but we also recognize the framers had something very specific in mind when they conditioned treaties on a two-thirds ratification vote. If their purpose was to require that the government be strong enough to govern, but also responsive to the, the, to the will of those who govern, that's the art. Because you've got to set up a body that can both compel people, have the force of law, but also be responsive, ultimately operate under the will of those it governs. How do you get that? And the Constitution is the answer to that, the greatest of all the answers ever given to that. And it, it depends upon dividing powers among different peoples who are in the government with authority drawn in all cases from the people. And so that system, you see, because once you make a treaty with, with some nation, if you're going to live under the rule of law, the treaty is a very significant thing. And so then the authority for it should be drawn widely from the people under regular processes. And those are the ones that are circumvented by this new method of bureaucratic rule. And I, I want to say a word for Donald Trump, by the way, because um, I came to believe that he was going to act like this back during the campaign. And I was astonished at myself to believe it. But just think what he's done. He stood up to the scorn of the world. And he's watching polls every day and all of that. But because he's done what he's done, he's got the American people involved in this again. 
they get a chance now to make up their mind, and there's elections coming, and there are the darkest warnings about those elections against him, he has appealed to us. I'm going to stop this thing, and if you want this kind of thing, you're going to have to elect somebody else. And I think that makes him an advocate of the rule of law, as he said. That John Podesta the chairman of the defeated Secretary Clinton campaign, wrote for the Washington Post last night, Trump just drew the battle lines for 2018 and 2020. He writes, a majority of Americans have come to expect the worst of President Trump, and he seems incapable of defying that expectation. His decision to withdraw the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement takes him well beyond his cynical populist appeals and deep into the territory of know-nothingism. Unfortunately, he is dragging America and its prestige there with him, and he goes on to predict that electoral disaster awaits the Republicans. Now, what's interesting about this, Dr. Arn, is that presidents who face re-election campaigns are not in the habit of doing job-destroying, economy-crippling things, and they also don't like to lose midterms. So clearly, Mr. Podesta has one view, and the president has another. Clearly. Yeah, and he, and you know, another thing is, uh, you know, of course Trump is unpopular, and, you know, God, there was a fever three weeks ago that we thought we, that Donald Trump would be out of, the, out of the Oval Office by the end of last month. <laughs> and, and, you know, it was just a stampede going on in the media, whereas the actual fact about how you go about removing a president of the United States do not look prominent, promising for his imminent withdrawal, right? But so, so we think the Trump administration is over, and he's been, in, he's been completely discredited, and the whole world knows that. When I say we, I mean just read the big newspapers. That's yeah, the, the elite say. media bubble in which the yeah. echo is so loud as to obscure everything other said, that is being said anywhere in the country. Now, you see, we don't, and the real truth about that is we don't know, right? That's coming a long time from now. Like the, you know, I, I see all kinds of worrisome signs, right? The enemies of Donald Trump are very animated. And there's some danger that all the people who voted for Trump, you know, a large majority of them don't actually get up in the morning thinking, I've got to spend my day all day long, uh, what is it, uh, thinking globally and acting locally. Yes. Most people get up and think, you know, visualize world peace, you know that. Uh, they think about how the traffic's going to be. That's right. You know, i got to get to work here. And, uh, you know, what am I doing today? Well, Hugh Hewitt's calling today. So, so most people do that, right? And maybe then they won't be very energetic, and Trump's enemies will be very energetic. I'm worried about that. Trump has got to be worried about that. I think he's picked this thing because he believes in it. And I also point out, this morning news has arrived, that job creation was far below what was expected. The economy is weaker than was believed. Therefore, exiting a job-destroying agreement is the best interest of the person at the end of the line. And I made this argument, Dr. Arn. Affirmative action has always offended me, not because of the people it helps, but because the people left outside of the door, that person who doesn't get into the law school or the medical school. Uh, Bill Shamber used to argue this to me. He said, always think of the person who doesn't get in and you're giving something that does not belong to you away to someone who does not deserve it over the person behind. And the person who doesn't lose a job because of Paris Accord is not as invested in it as someone who does. And those people are marginal voters, and they will applaud this. I don't believe... There are that many people. I just don't believe there are that many people who vote on the basis of the Paris Accord. I, I don't either. And see, look at this, too. 
so the Competitive Enterprise Institute, a good bunch of people I've known a long time, they, uh, they, they make the estimate that one sees, they spend some time and money on it, trying to figure out how much does regulation cost the American economy. And just in the last month or so, they came out with the thing, and it was $2 trillion, which, you know, is a lot of money. It's, you know, it's, even the college doesn't have that much money. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, hold the thought. I got to go to break. So, hold the thought. I want you to come back on the CEA and not get interrupted in the middle of that. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. One more segment ahead of the Paris Accord. Don't go anywhere, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues. Arn will be back. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. My in- interview with Administrator Scott Pruitt from last hour is now transcribed thanks to Dwayne and posted at HughHewitt.com. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale. Boy, if you haven't. After all these years, started going there every day. I don't know what's wrong with you, but all the Hillsdale dialogues are collected at hugh4hillsdale.com. Everything Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. And before you even argue with a leftist, watch the Constitution Court uh, by Dr. Arn over at hillsdale.edu. When we went to break, Dr. Arn, you were warming up to serve a competitive enterprise institute uh, assessment of this situation. So let's say that uh, the regulatory cost in total are $2 trillion. I think the U.S. economy might be $16 trillion, so that's a lot of money. Um, this, let's say the Paris Accords cost us $200 billion or $300 billion or $400 billion or some big number, right? Then, then how is anybody going to know that's why they lost their job? So the, the, the problem that is presented to the American voter and I think that the left and this new bureaucratic method don't think people are, are capable of solving this problem, is they have to figure out, really, what kind of world do they want to live in? Do they want to live in a world of limited government where things are not done to them that they don't understand and they're done by constitutional processes? Or do they want to live in a world where the fact that 196 countries, which means diplomats from 196 countries, got a gig in Paris went to Paris and signed a complicated agreement that is, as Donald Trump rightly says, an unfolding framework that commits continued and constant new methods to fight climate change. So do they want that world or do they want some other world? And if they want that world, that old world, the world that we lived in when we could understand our government and there was not so much of it, then sure enough, if it becomes apparent that there's a big problem, then, and you know, not just because somebody did a study and said there is, if it becomes apparent, then free governments will react. And they tend to react reasonably, right? Uh, you know, we, in, uh, take an example. We had always been a nation that stood back from the world in, in international conflict, but after and after the First World War, we returned to form about that. But after the Second World War, we revolutionized our foreign policy, in, in my opinion, in ways that were reasonable because we figured out it's a really dangerous world and we need to be involved in it in more ways than we used to be. When facts arise that, that show what needs to be done, democratic peoples under good constitutions are actually the best way. And, and, and I need to point out, our friend Brett Stevens, for whom I know you have esteem as I do, uh, has tweeted out, Gallup shows why rejection of Paris is a political winner for Trump. Environmental concerns is number one issue, a grand total of 2% of the population. 
And those 2% are reliably Democratic voters. But I think what we have is a false positive about the amplification of the importance of the issue in voters' mind. And voters tend to be very self-interested, Dr. Ryan. This is what uh, elites don't realize. People will not want the climate to change adversely. They believe, I believe now, there is an embedded cynicism about declarations of catastrophe around the corner, which makes it very difficult to achieve a climate change consensus. And I don't know how we get there because of the screaming or virtue signaling that is endless so that people just turn it off. That's, it, it, people don't trust much of what's said anymore to them, and uh, they don't get as much argument as they used to get from the big places, right? It's one reason why you're on the radio. So people, people are interested and people are pretty smart. You know, polling shows, by the way, that people's interest widen as elections approach. It's the reason why Al Gore, when he launched his presidential campaign with his main themes, uh, uh, appeal to not being able to get to the soccer match after the school because of traffic. Because you just poll the American people, what matters to you? And what matters to you is, I didn't get to the dry cleaners on time today, right? You just think about yourself, that's your concern. But then later, when the election approaches, the Constitution now gives you a job. Now you've got to think more widely. And you can just watch that list that you talk about, it changes. As, as elections approach in a pattern that's been going on for a long time. Now, that 2% number, that never gets to 60%, right? Never. You know, why would it? And, and, and I believe, and we have a minute left, in Great Britain, when we speak next week, they will have voted. And I believe their lens will get very wide as we get very close. And a lot of people are not going to vote for this Marxist group called the Labor Party. I just don't believe it, but I could be wrong, Dr. Arn. And then like Churchill... In 1945, you exit gracefully, correct? Yeah, and then uh, keep fighting, right, and win again in the future. And, you know, you uh, there's a lot of feeling about this. You know, first of all, I, I believe, as I say, I actually think that solar power is going to take off, and I think it's important for us to do nothing to impede that. XR is claimed that it's just going to happen. And it is. Let it happen. And let happen next week, the next Hillsdale Dialogue. All of them collected at Hugh for Hillsdale. Dr. Larry Arn, always a pleasure. Great to talk with you. Thank you, America. Thank you, Adam and Dwayne and Ben and Jake and Danielle and everyone who produces and delivers to you every single day. The Hugh Hewitt Show.